You may be seated. We read verses 1 through 10 this morning, but I'll just be preaching from verses 1 through 3. But if we remember last week, we began our study in Thessalonians. We began it in Acts. And we learned how the church in Thessalonia was was born out of persecution. We finished that with with Paul being worried about the believers in Thessalonica because of the persecution they were going through because of their afflictions. And he was concerned that they would not stand firm in the faith and eager to learn about them. He sends Timothy back to Thessalonica so that he may encourage the church and then report back to him how they are doing. And once Timothy returns with with, with the news that after he has ministered to them, he returns with a wonderful report that the church is not only standing, but they are thriving. And it was this news that uplifted the spirit of Paul to where he pins this letter. But as we begin to go through Thessalonians this morning, what was it? That was fueling this church. What was causing them to live in such a way where Timothy gives this resounding report that in spite of persecution, in spite of affliction, they were thriving. What was the distinguishing mark that set the Thessalonians apart? What is the distinguishing mark that sets apart every true church? The answer is found in verse 1, where, it's, where Paul says, To the Thessalonians, in God. God is the distinguishing mark of the church. And from this distinguishing mark flows three distinguishing virtues evident, or that should be evident in the church, and that is faith that works Love that labors and hope that endures. So if you will, look with me, beginning at verse 1. So Paul begins his his greeting. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And I want to first bring our attention to the fact that, that Paul, in his greeting, he does not set himself apart or does not put himself on some type of pedestal uh, above the other two, two men. He puts them on equal footing. And why does he do this? He does it because they are on equal footing. Paul knows that apart from Christ, that he's nothing. It is Christ who has made him an apostle. And if Christ so desires, it is Christ who can remove that apostleship from him. That is why any time that Paul mentions his title, it is usually, well, it's always in humility. He always mentions it in humility and usually to defend his authority as one sent by God. But since his apostleship is not being questioned here in Thessalonians, he doesn't, he, or by the Thessalonian church, he doesn't feel the need to mention it in this greeting. He also doesn't mention it in the greeting to the Philippians for the same reason, but he does to those in Corinth and in Galatians. 
He would address them, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, not of himself, now the will of man, but of Christ. But again, looking back at the text, it says Paul, Savannah, and Timothy. And just a little bit about these two men. Savannah was the Latin name for, for Silas. I think that's what most of us know him by. But it was a Latin name for Silas, and he's been Paul's companion throughout this missionary journey. He was supposed to travel with Barnabas, but, but after he and Paul and Barnabas have a falling out due to John Mark, or about John Mark, he chose Silas to travel with him. Silas was likely a Roman citizen. We see that in Philippi, when he and Paul are released from jail, the, the authorities there are apologizing to them because of their Roman citizenship. Sylvanus or, or Silas was more than qualified to travel with Paul. We find him first mentioned in Acts as a leading brother of the church. And he was sent by the apostles to, or he was sent by the apostles to report what had happened at the Jerusalem, at the Jerusalem council as he reports to Antioch. Later in that chapter, he's also referred to as a prophet. And it is of no doubt that Silas proved himself to be a faithful minister and co-laborer in the gospel alongside Paul, not only in Thessalonica, but throughout his missionary journey. Timothy, unlike Silas, did not begin the journey with Paul, but he joined him in Lystra. Timothy's father was an unsaved Greek, but his mother was a Jewish believer, and alongside her, his grandmother, her mother, Lois, they taught Timothy the scriptures from a young boy. If you're well acquainted with the scriptures, you know that Timothy became Paul's son in the faith, and two letters are addressed to him from Paul. So Timothy was not mentioned in the, in the, um, I can't think of the word here, in the narrative last week in Acts, he did minister with Paul and Silas at Thessalonica. And then, of course, we learned last week he reported back to Paul as he, after he was sent to Thessalonica about how they were doing. And that report is the context or the setting of this letter. So, again, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, meaning assembly. And at this time, the word church had no specific Christian connotation. It could have been referring to any religious or secular gathering. Therefore, therefore, being referred to as the ecclesia in and of itself, I want us to hear this very clearly. Being referred to the church in and of itself had no distinguishing mark for the Thessalonian believers. See, church, anyone can gather. Anyone can assemble. What we see even during this fall is football season. And what happens every Saturday and Sunday morning? People gather in the ecclesia. They gather together to root for their football teams. There's all types of assemblies. There's social clubs. There's book clubs. There, there's clubs who... They call themselves churches, but they function more as clubs, but they meet as ecclesias. You can find an assembly anywhere. 
But what made the gathering of the Thessalonians distinct? What gave them their distinguishing mark from the Gentile gatherings or even the synagogue? What makes this church at Green Run Baptist and any true church truly distinct? It is Paul's next words, which we mentioned in the opening. To the church of the Thessalonians in God. This was not just any assembly. This was God's assembly. This church They found their identity in God. It's rest in God. They were rooted in God. And as John Stott said, they drew their life from God. Without God, there would be no letter addressed to the Thessalonians because there would be no church in Thessalonia. But hear this. If Paul stops there, if he stops here in this greeting and he only says in God, if he only says that they are in God the Father, you would still not be able to distinguish them from the believer, from even the believers. I mean, you would not be able to distinguish these believers from the Jews of the synagogue because they also claimed to be in God the Father. So what truly distinguishes, distinguishes them is this next phrase. Again, yes, they are in God the Father, but they are only in him through the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, verse one, they're in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is the Lord Jesus Christ but God the Son? Everything that was true of the Father was and is true of the Son. Earlier, we said they found their identity in the father. They also found them in the son. If they found if they were rooted in the father, they were also rooted in the son. If they're resting in the father, they were resting in the son as well. This is what separates Christianity from all other religions. The declaration that Jesus is God. In this culture, you can say A lot of things about Jesus. You can say he was a great prophet. You can say that Jesus is a God, small g, among other gods. But as soon as you declare the truth, as soon as you set him apart for who he truly is. As soon as you remove that indefinite article. And put the definite article and and declare him as the only True God and the only way to the father, that is where the offense comes in. But through the preaching of the gospel, the Thessalonians had had come to know. As John 1030 says, as Jesus declared, he and the father are one. And he also they also knew they came to know John 14, 9, that if they had not the son, they had not The Father, even in the title Lord that Paul puts here, the title Lord, which means master in the Greek, Paul was likely drawing from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, where Lord is used as a personal name for God, Yahweh. So when reading this text, you could say, To the church 
of the Thessalonians in God the Father and God or Yahweh, Jesus, who is the Christ. Equally one with the Father. That is, a, that is the identifying factor of the church, that they are in Christ. That they are saved by God. And it is this identifying factor that drives everything else in this chapter. Not just verses 1 through 3, but everything in the chapter and really everything in this letter. Really everything in the entirety of the Bible or in the New Testament and that of the church. But it drives everything else in these verses. It drives their faith. It drives their love. It drives their hope. That they are saved. Is the foundation that they are saved in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the foundation for all else. That they have been adopted by the Father and changed through an encounter with the Son. So as we think through these things, we need to ask ourselves this morning, are you in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ? Then once we look at the fruit, the evidence of one who is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in God the Father, I want you to ask yourselves that question again. Do these things mark your life? Do you desire to grow in them? Do you desire to grow in godliness, to exemplify faith, to exemplify love, to exemplify the hope that lies within you? But if you examine yourself this morning and you find that wanting, we call you this morning to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This very moment to believe on the son who came, who lived, who died, who was resurrected in victory, who has all power. He is the access to the father. Repent and believe in him this morning and then you can be greeted with these words that we see at the end of verse 1. Paul ends his greeting with the words grace to you and peace. These seem like a simple greeting, but there are not many more powerful words in all the Bible. In one sense, they have already received grace. We have received grace in the free gift of salvation on the behalf of Christ though we do not deserve it. Pastor Joe refers to grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. We have been both been granted the riches of salvation and also every blessing that comes along with it at the expense of Christ. If Christ did not hang on that tree, if he did not take that curse upon himself, that curse that we deserve, if he does not take the wrath of the Father, there is no grace, there is no peace, there is no church. But not only do we have grace, we have peace with God. Again, as his wrath was satisfied, we have been reconciled to the Father through the Son. By the blood of Jesus, we have peace. This feat would be impossible. It would be absolutely impossible on our own. We would have to be perfect from the moment we were born to the moment of our death. 
we would, technically we would need to be God to have our sins forgiven. It's an impossibility apart from Christ, apart from what he has done. So the Thessalonians and all Christians, anyone in here who is saved, we have peace. We have received grace. But Paul is also praying. He's, he's praying for grace upon grace. He's praying for grace in the present, for grace in the future. That that same grace that saved them will be the same grace that keeps them and the same grace that will glorify them. And he's praying for the peace that surpasses all understanding. That peace that we learn about in Philippians where you guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, that peace of God that will be with them, that is with you in every circumstance. And it's so interesting that we have this dichotomy here in the, in the text. That, and then on one hand, these Thessalonian believers, they have no peace. They're being persecuted. They're, they're, they're being afflicted in the physical But on the other hand, they have an incomprehensible peace in God because they rest in him, because they belong to him, to the one who will lose none of his. So as we finish verse one, we see this distinguishing mark of the church. That they are in God, the father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. And from this reality flows the three distinguishing virtues that should be evident of the church. And I'll repeat them again. That is faith that works, love that labors, and hope that endures. It is God. This this letter is not so much about the Thessalonians as it is about God. I hope we understand that. If we look already, we've already mentioned or Paul's already mentioned God a a number of times. It's the church of the Thessalonians in God. Then he mentions God again because the Lord Jesus Christ is God. So they're in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse two, we'll we'll see in a moment who, who does he give thanks to? To God. For the Thessalonians, he gives thanks to God. Verse three, they remember before our God. I'm going to venture into some of Amos' texts next week. But verse 4, they're loved by God. Verse 8, they became imitators of us and the Lord. Also in verse 8, no, that's verse 6, excuse me. In verse 8, they have faith in God. And then in verse 9, they turned from idols to God, or to God from idols, that is the correct terminology, or the correct phrasing, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is about God and what he does, what he did, and what he is going to do. What he is doing through the Thessalonians, what he does through us as believers. But it is God who is working in them both to will and to act for his good pleasure. For we are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for his works. It is all of him. It has always been all of him. It will always be all of him. And Paul, knowing this more than anybody, him realizing this, him realizing that the source of the fruit that the Thessalonians bear are because of God, he offers thanksgiving and prayers to God. Verse 2. We give thanks, again, as we just said, to who? To God. We give thanks to God. But I want us to hone in on the word we for a moment. It's not just Paul praying for them. He's not praying for them by himself. He's praying along with Silas. He's praying along with Timothy. And he's praying along with anybody else that is serving with them. It says we give thanks to God. So we should not just be praying privately for one another, but corporately as as well. The importance, the essential nature of praying together. There's a reason we pray multiple times in the service. There's a reason we as elders get together every Wednesday and pray together for the church. Corporate prayer is essential. So I want to encourage us in that this morning that we not would only pray privately, but we will pray together, whether that be in small groups, whether that be calling somebody and say, hey, let's pray together. But it is essential. And Paul is demonstrating that here, that not only him, but others are praying for the church with him. But it says we give thanks to God, not to themselves, not to himself or Timothy or or Silas, though they were the ones that were ministering to them in the flesh. Not to the Thessalonians, even though they were the ones exemplifying these three virtues that we will read about. But they gave thanks to the one who enabled them to minister and enabled the Thessalonians to bear fruit. Again, they gave thanks to God. Then it says, always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So as often as they came to their mind, they gave thanks and they prayed for them. And not just some of them, but every single person in the congregation. It says, all of you, there was no respective persons, whether they were Jew, whether they were Greek, whether they were mature in the faith, whether they were immature. God was working in all of them, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy are giving thanks for all of them. We need to give thanks for everybody in the church, for all those who God has saved, no matter who they are, whether they are friends, whether we know them that well, every soul that Christ has saved is precious. They are his workmanship. He has crafted them from out of his own choosing, and he's molding them into the image of his son. Oh, we should give much thanks for that. We should give much thanks for those whom God has called out of darkness into his light. Just as Paul and Timothy and Silas are giving thanks for them all. The verse continues, it says, constantly mentioning them in their prayers. On a consistent basis. 
Not that they pray for them 24 hours a day, but they pray for them consistently. Every time they remembered them, they prayed. They gave thanks. They gave thanks for what God was doing. And notice that thanks and thanksgiving and praying, they go to they go together here. He gives thanks and he prays. And why are they so thankful and prayerful? Our answer is in verse three. Remembering before God, our God and Father. They were calling their time that they spent with them at Thessalonica. They're remembering them. Church, if we would remember one another more, then we would give thanks and pray for one another more. We would do it more often. How do you, but how do you think Paul knew of their faith? How did he know of their hope? How did he know of their love? It's because he knew them. He was with them. He was in the trenches with them. He was fighting with them. He was ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. That's why he knew them. Is that true of us? Do we know each other? And not just, oh, we know each other's names. We we say hi to each other on, on Sunday mornings when we have greetings or when we used to have greetings, we, we, we speak or before the service or, or after the service, a, a quick hi and bye, but do we know each other? Are we in the trenches with one another? Are we in the fight together? That's why the corporate gathering is so essential. But again, this, as I said, not just gathering, but being involved, serving together. Serving within the church Serving without, I mean, serving within and outside of the church. Ministering with one another. Small groups, any, any type of thing where we can be together. Knowing each other in an intimate way. If we are doing those things, we will remember each other before our God and we'll be offering both praise and thanksgiving, because we will see what God is doing in each and every one of us, and we won't be able to help but give thanks. But now let us look at these three distinct virtues that Paul is remembering of the church. Let's read verse 3 again. Remembering before our God, The Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first distinguishing virtue of a church that is in God is that they are marked by faith in God that works. This simply means that the faith of those who are in Christ Jesus will produce good works. It is an impossibility for the spirit of the living God to be inside of someone and they not be changed. It doesn't happen. That is why James says in his epistle, faith 
without works is dead. If there are no works, there was no faith to begin with. Listen, works are a natural consequence of faith. It is a natural consequence of the new birth. People like to pretend that James and Paul are saying something different, but they're saying exactly the same thing. James may be more focused on the works that are produced from faith, and Paul is more focused on the faith that produces the works, but it's the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin. To be clear, if I already wasn't clear enough, works don't add anything to your salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But I stole this from somebody. I can't remember who said this. I think I hear a lot of people say this, but it's through faith alone. But that faith is never alone. Saving faith always acts. God is never going to save a man. He's never going to save a woman or a child and then just leave them there. He's going to use them. He's going to work in them. He's going to do marvelous things in them. You're going to be able to look, look at them years after they were saved and say, man, I remember how they were. I remember what they were like before the Lord saved them. Look at them now. Look what the Lord has done. And then if if you're one that's been saved from a young child, you're you're still going to, what a marvelous truth. You're you're going to be able to look at them and say, man, the Lord kept them all this time from from all these things of the world. And he, he has turned them into something wonderful, into something beautiful. Saving faith always acts. And Paul witnessed the very faith of the Thessalonians by their works. That's how he knew of their faith. Now, Paul does not detail the specific works that flowed from their faith in God. But good works are simply any action that is pleasing in the sight of God. Any action that is pleasing in the sight of God. It is obeying the revealed will of God as we find it in the scriptures. It is abstaining from every form of evil. It is putting the death to death the deeds of the body. It is practicing kindness, humility, and patience. It is forgiving one another. It is and also seeking to be forgiven. It is loving your enemies. It's feeding the poor. It's telling others of the hope that lies within you. In a nutshell, it is looking at the character and nature of Jesus Christ and attempting to replicate him. That is good works. And though good works will never be done in perfection, the only one that was perfect, that ever worked perfectly, was Christ. That's how anyone is saved. No one can be a saved from the, apart from the work that he did. So in a sense, we are saved by works, but the works of another, by the, the works of the perfect man, the God man, Jesus Christ. So we won't have to work because we can't work enough. Again, we would have to be absolutely perfect in every way. So really, this goes back to the source Do you have faith in God? The distinguishing mark of the church. 
Remember, it's God. It's faith is in him. It's being in him and is being in him, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you in him? Are you in him? If you are, you will produce fruit. You will have good works. And you will also be known by a labor. That's the next virtue. A labor that is prompted by love towards others. The faith that works is God-focused, and this love that labors is others or people-focused. The word, the word love used by Paul in this text is agape. It's the highest form of love. It's a self-sacrificial love. It's the kind of love that Christ showed us who were sinners when he died for us. And it's this same type of love that the Thessalonians are seeking to model. It's not a love that's merely emotional. It's not a love that's just feelings-based. It's a love that is tangible. It's a love that can be seen, that can be touched. It's a love that is in action. It does things. True biblical love expresses itself in in hard labor, both physically and spiritually. I hope when we see how Paul labored, examples of his labor, that it would convict us how he worked out of love. But this word labor, it means to toil. It means to go until exhaustion. So the Thessalonians literally loved to exhaustion. Both those of the household of faith and those who were outside the household of faith. Though it was hard, it was difficult. Love always is because it's a giving up of self and we love ourselves. But it was hard, though it was hard, they sought the betterment of others above themselves. Now, once again, Paul does not mention or, or details these, detail these exact labors. But we do have some clues within the letter of what some of these labors were. Verse 6 of chapter 1, it tells us that they became imitators of Paul and of the Lord. So what are some of the things that Paul was doing? Verse 9 describes some of his labors of love. It reads, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Because of the love that Paul, Silas, and Timothy have for them, they were laboring so as not to be a burden to them. So they loved them, therefore they labored. But verse 9, wait, well, let me back up for a second. But it, that labor that Paul, that Silas and Timothy showed them, that is a self-sacrificial love that the Thessalonians were imitating of Paul. 
So they saw what Paul did, and then they're likely loving, or they are loving in very similar ways. Verse 9, it says, not only imitators of Paul, but imitators of the Lord, who was the one that Paul was imitating himself. That's why he said, follow me as I follow Christ. But looking at the Lord, what did he do but live a life of sacrifice that is prompted by love for others, by love for us? A love that took him all the way to the cross to die. So I think I can say here that the Thessalonian believers, they were dying in some way. They were dying for one another. They were giving up their lives for each other. This reminds me of the type of love that Ephesians 5 says that husbands are to have for their wives, loving them as Christ loved the church and gave himself and gave himself up for her. I'm tempted to just preach on the love of Christ for a moment and all that he's done for his church, but I'll I'll continue. But as I said earlier, this, this love, it manifested itself not only in labor for their brothers, so they're laboring for them. They they love them. They look at the love of Christ for them, and then they love their brethren and their, their sisters the same. But not only their brothers. But the lost. They're loving the lost as well. The same people who were persecuting them were the same people they were praying for and the same people who they were sounding forth the gospel to. Verse 7 tells us that the word of the Lord sounded forth from them in Macedonia and Achaia, and it has spread everywhere. As Paul loved them and brought them the word in much affliction, they were turning around and loving others while in much affliction. They were spreading the gospel to those who hated them to those who reviled them. And in spite of, they're saying, I know you hate me, but I love you because Christ loves me and I'm going to share the gospel with you. That is what love looks like. That wasn't easy. It was done in the power of the Spirit. It couldn't be done on their own. It's hard. It's difficult, love is. It's it's laborious. But for those who are in Christ, it is also joyous. It is a great joy to love others. So let his love for us, that is the key. Let Christ's love for us, the Father's love for us, fuel our love for one another. So let's look for ways to outdo one another in love, to outdo one another in honor. Let's love until it seems like we can't love anymore. But then we know that we can because it's not us, but Christ who is in us. We're not loving in our own strength, but on the strength of him who has called us. Which brings us to the third and final virtue. Hope that endures, hope that lasts, hope that perseveres. Steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, as the ESV says it. 
And this is not a, a grinding or, or, or just striving perseverance where, where you have to make you just have to make it to the end on, on your own strength and, and you're struggling and, and you're toiling and then you, you finally make it to the end. No, this is a cheerful endurance. Some scholars refer to it as a heroic or brave endurance. An endurance that rejoices in the midst of persecution. That has joy in every affliction and that perseveres through all circumstances. And how was that possible? It is because of the one in whom they hope. The one who has won all things for the sake of his elect. The one who has victory. He went to the cross. They thought he was dead. Well, he was dead. They, they thought he wasn't coming back. Satan was rejoicing. But then he rose from the dead in all victory. And now he sits beside his father reigning. And he calls all men everywhere to repent. We have hope because he has accomplished all things. He accomplished. We have hope because of what he accomplished in the past. Hope because of his working power in the present and hope and what he has in store for us in the future. We have hope beyond the grave because he conquered the grave. And he will return. This life is it's a vapor. It's hard many times. But we look forward to the day when he will return. He's already had victory, but he will return in victory. His victory will be fully realized. And we will reign with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. So this is the one who we hope in, the one in whom we trust in. It is Christ, our Lord, our victor, our savior. Put your trust in him. Again, put your trust in him if that is not you. If he is not, well, he is, your, he is Lord over all, but if you are not in him, if you do not know him, or better yet, if he does not know you, then repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't, don't leave here. After the service, I'll, I'll be up here for a moment. If you don't believe in Christ, please don't hesitate. If you're not sure if you are in him, please don't hesitate to come and have a chat. But these are the virtues that mark the Thessalonians. These virtues will be seen throughout the entirety of this letter. You will constantly see love that labors, faith that is working, both in Paul and the Thessalonian believers. And you will see the hope that endures. May we at Green Run Baptist be known by these distinct these distinguishing virtues because we do know him. We are in him. If we are in him, we will look like him. Not in perfection. Let's not be discouraged. Let's not look at how the Lord is, is working in the Thessalonians and we look and we find ourselves coming short because as I've read through this letter, 
me and Amos have talked about this. But if, if I read, as I've read through this letter, I'm coming up short in many, many ways. So don't let that discourage you. But let what Paul calls the Thessalonians to do for us to do the same. He, he says, I see what God is doing in you, but do it more. Do it more. It's not that we're not doing. It's not that we're not working. It's not that we're not laboring in love. It's not that we're not hoping with endurance. Well, let's do it the more. That's the encouragement. But John Calvin, he called these virtues a brief definition of Christianity. They summed it up. But the key, as I've tried to push, is that these are only happening because they are in God. He is the source of all things. We should always look to him. If we see ourselves working well, don't pat yourself on the back. In fact, if you do, you might see yourself falling the next moment. But don't pat yourself on the back. Look to him. He's the one that's causing it. He's the one that's working in you. He's the one that put his spirit within you, that regenerated you when you were dead in sin. It's not anything of your own. You have nothing to boast about. Paul said, what have you received that you were not given? If you're laboring in love, it's not you. It's Christ that is in you. And if you see somebody else that is not, you feel is not loving or laboring as much as you are, don't, then pray for them. But don't look down on them. Oh, look at me. <laughs> look how well I'm loving. Well, you probably aren't loving that well then. And so, and not that that's anybody in this church, but... And then if you are hoping well, remember, Paul, he said, I pray, I give thanks for all of you. All of you, those who are weak in faith, those who are strong in faith, it didn't matter. All. Because God is working in all that are in him. But if we see these things, let's thank God for them. He's the driving force. He's the one that is going to be, that is doing all the marvel or that did all the marvelous things we're going to find out in this chapter. Amos will get into more of that next week. But church, within these virtues lie the true essence of the Christian faith. But as I've just said, I'm repeating myself again in some way, but we are only able to live out these virtues because we are in God. And in closing, he is the one who founded the church. He is the one who is sustaining the church. And he, at the culmination of all things. See, I keep wanting to preach, but I got to stop. He at the culmination of all things. When all is finished, when his victory is fully realized, he will glorify the church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, I'm nothing, just a vessel. So, Father, I, I pray that something of what I have spoken has rang true, and it is your word. And if I preached your word as it's supposed to be preached, then it did not turn void. Lord, I ask that 
we will be filled with your spirit, that we would go out rejoicing, excited, fueled, fueled by you, by your gospel, to labor in love, to work in faith, and have hope that endures. Father, look after your people as I know you will do. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.